This week's episode of Uncultured the Podcast is sponsored by Neem Wellness, a luxury hair and skincare brand offering a blend of traditional Indian alchemy with modern science. Is this thing on? Cool. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Uncultured the Podcast. I'm your host, Kripa, here to add a little bit of colour to your weeks. This week I had the pleasure to sit down with one of my favourite people, Maria Thottil. Maria is a speaker, writer, creator and just a little one to add to the list, Miss Universe Australia 2020, turning Australian beauty standards on their head. The thing I love about Maria is that with her modeling and with her beauty is so much consciousness and intention. You can tell how much she cares about the role she plays as a role model beyond just the way she looks. Her advocacy around diversity, inclusion, equality has no bounds. I was really excited to hear what she had to say, but also really excited about what's coming up. There are parts of the audio that are a little bit shuffly, but bear with us on this one. Maria's beautiful hair just got in the way, but I'm sure her message will be clear. So, here's Maria. Maria, hello. Hi. Oh my goodness, look at my headphones. <laughs> Let me you fix the situation. Thank you, gorgeous. So do you. How are you? Well, I'm, I'm wearing my PJ pants, so I'm, I'm just beautiful from the head up. <laughs> Girl, I love that. I If I wasn't in a dress, I would probably have no pants on. No one needs to know. I mean, I've literally told you two minutes in, but that's yeah. it. <laughs> We're just breaking all the ice. I know. I don't need for an icebreaker. How's your day going? Good. I know my Zoom says Zoom user, but my name is Kripa. I don't know how to change it. I've got a new laptop and I now every time I enter a uni tute or something, it's just like Zoom user. You had a question? And I'm like, yep. Oh <laughs> that's my me. God. Zoom user. Well, I, I knew your name was Kripa. Glad you clarified because maybe I would have started referring to you as Zoom user. Who knows? You're welcome too. <laughs> um, thank you for for being here. How was your Halloween? I, firstly, I love what you do with your podcast. I think it is such a great space and you're having wonderful conversations for the Brown community. So well done and thank you. And I'm so honored to be on it. And Halloween, it, it, it wasn't really Halloween-y this year because I was just, I've worked all weekend. I've just had so much honor. I've just worked all weekend. I fit in some time with family and friends and I was sad. So next year I'm going all out. I had such bad FOMO. What about you? Same. I was. I have exams next week, so I've got my finals. <gasps> and so I've just been watching, um, watching everyone's Instagram stories, and I've been extremely FOMO. I can relate. But yeah, um, next year is always there. Oh my god! Good luck with your exams. That's massive. Thank you. It's year twelve. Thank you. Uni. No. Uh, I do. I look like I'm in year twelve. <laughs> No, you look, but you, you've got youthful skin. Oh, thank you. <laughs> like, when you say That's exams, the first time anyone said that. <laughs> you, honestly, you could tell me you were 27 and you could tell me you were 17 and I would believe both. That's the perks of being South Asian. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm 24, so okay. um, I have, it's my uni finals, yeah. Oh, my God, amazing. What are you studying? Uh, media and law. So Amazing. A little, bit of, a little bit of both, yeah. That's yeah. great. I'm excited to be done though. So mm, um, I've been doing it for like seven years and I'm, yeah, just so oh. ready to get out of here. <laughs> oh, that is a long time. That's I, I felt the same with uni. I think I got to the end of five years and I'm like, I'm done. What was your degree again? Uh, my first one was psychology and then the second one I did was a master's in management and I majored in HR. You can use all of that stuff in oh, yeah. the stuff you do now as well, I can imagine. Yeah, it's essential and I think it just gives me a lot more credibility when I'm speaking about, you know, diversity and inclusion and women's issues and I have the corporate lens and it's it all adds to everything. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> I forget that HR um, covers diversity and inclusion that just gave me a little reminder but diversity and inclusion doesn't always sit under hr and where it does in a company's organizational structure it tells you what they think of it same with hr so it, it sat under well-being for a while in one of the government departments i worked in i'm like this isn't a well-being thing dni 
It is essential. Do you know what I mean? And managing diversity and inclusion, giving it to a well-being expert when it should be built into our structure, into our recruitment, um, attraction and retention plans. Like it's, it didn't, anyway, (laughs) I'm having like PTS from when I would say to my manager, this isn't right. (laughs) Honestly, I was in, um, I was in the HR team for diversity inclusion as well. So I'm like having the same PTSD. I know, massively, massively. I mean, thank you earlier for your kind words, um, about the podcast. I'm, I was going to give you a quick context, um, context explainer on what we do on the podcast but it's so amazing you're across it you're right we do elevate south asian stories i think that's because there just isn't really the space that we need in mainstream media Mm -hmm. and and just creating our own spaces is kind of something that people are slowly starting to do and what i wanted to do it's exactly what you do you have created your own space and pioneered a whole new perception of what is an Australian beauty. What is interesting about your journey is that it goes beyond how beautiful you are, obviously, to look at. You are face, body, that's, you know, what modelling is. But your journey is so different and impactful because you espouse everything that comes with being a South Asian model in Australia. Obviously, on one side of it, it's amazing because you've changed the game for so many South Asian women and men who look at you and they're like, yeah, actually I am beautiful. Um, that is something that I can, I can look at the most beautiful person in Australia and she looks like me. Um, and as a fellow South Indian woman as well, I mean, a lot of quintessentially beautiful people from South Asian, um, the South Asian backgrounds tend to be really fair skinned, thin, tall women. And you're, you know, dark skin, fit, shorter, it's everything. And you're beautiful. And I think that obviously doesn't come without its backlash as well. And you've just handled it like a boss bitch, if I can say that. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Um, You're probably one of the most recognisable South Asian faces in the Australian media. And I think, yeah, there is just so much weight behind that. So I wanted to start by saying thank you. Oh, my God. I don't know if you can tell, but my eyes have been welling up. And I'm like, don't cry, don't cry, because you have another meeting after this. But (laughs) it's um, it means a lot. And I think now that I'm pausing and reflecting on where I'm going next, that it's suddenly dawned on me what the past year has meant to so many people because it was such a fast-paced year that I, I didn't stop. I didn't stop. And only when I reflected, transitioned, and I'm on to the next thing, um, I've stopped and gone, oh, wow, like that is it. And it has changed things for people. And the stuff that's coming next will continue to change things for people. And your words just mean so much. I, I don't know what else to say other than thank you. And you can see it in my eyes right now. I really, really mean it. This is oh like my the God. highlight of my career. I almost made Maria Thatil cry. <laughs> <laughs> you pretty much did. I'm just like, I mean, don't let it out. Don't let it out. But your words are so generous. And um, But, it, but I, I recognize what you're saying and I am aware of that. And it is the biggest privilege of my entire career so far and I know it will continue to just the next thing the next thing but you know we'll get into that I'm so excited yeah we will we absolutely will um let's start at the beginning Mm -hmm. because obviously you've risen to like your meteoric stardom over the last year but there was a Maria before Miss Universe Australia actually I should provide for context for anyone listening um Maria was Miss Universe Australia um (laughs) 2020 (laughs) if you don't know and if you don't know then you've probably been hiding under a rock but yeah and since then you've done all this amazing advocacy work so um who was what were your passions growing up Maria? Oh, what a a lovely intro. Um, When I was a little kid, I was very creative, but painfully shy Kripa, I would cling to my mum's leg going into family parties and hide behind her. I had a lot of cousins and some older cousins and I was sensitive. So even when people would, you know, tease and joke, I would disappear into a shell. It was just painfully shy and had a lot of social anxiety, which did follow me into my teens, but I was very creative and I changed my career aspirations every week. My parents can attest to it. One week I'm like, you know what? I want to be a journalist. Then the next, I I remember wanting to be a florist because I saw an episode of Rugrats where Chucky 
sets up um, a florist stand. I wanted to be a clown, a writer, an author, um, a singer, actress, all these creative things. And I used to do everything, um, anything that would enable me to self-express. I kept this journal where I would illustrate, write news segments. I would write stories, write songs and, and draw. And my parents still have a lot of my drawings that I did when I was little. So just anything creative, that was my passion. I was not sporty. I was not, you know, overly confident, but getting into my head and being able to let the inner workings of my mind and my heart out via writing and drawing and and doing those little things, that is, you know, where I felt most passionate and where I was most alive. So that's what I was like as a kid, but just constantly inspired and changing my aspirations. And I guess it, you know, it, it makes sense that now I've got a multi-hyphenate career where I'm doing a bunch of different things because as a kid, I couldn't just settle on one. It was not for me. The beautiful irony in that is you've pretty much, you're doing all of those things that you wanted to do. So maybe yeah. a clown. I don't know who that one. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I didn't quite get the, I don't, I didn't get the clown one down. Yeah, Let's not we'll, rule we'll it out. On it. That's your 2022 plans. It might be. It might be what's coming next. <laughs> we don't rule anything out. But no, you're right. And it was really nice because as a kid, yeah, I couldn't quite pick one thing. And my grandma, I remember her saying to me, Maria, a rolling stone collects no moss, pick something and settle on it because she grew up in post-colonial India and she was an orphan at 16 and had to pick something and stick to it. But she was also very entrepreneurial and I feel like I'm glad I didn't pick something and stay stuck. I kind of did for a period, but then I was like, no, I, I want to just follow what feels right and then I've just ended up here where I'm doing all the things that I love. So it's very, it's very lucky. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And I think it does set an example for people as well, because so much of the immigrant mindset is to stick with something or follow a path. If you like science, stick to science. If you like humanities, stick to humanities. And, you know, it's either doctor or lawyer. And I think in the diaspora, especially, there's a lot more um, there's a lot more emergence of people going, you know what, I'm just going to follow my dream because otherwise I'm going to just be unhappy forever. Yeah, you're right. And you know, my parents, it was not lost on me that they moved here. And whilst they came from very good families back in India, they moved here and had to make it on their own. And they worked in, you know, they worked shift work. My dad um, would be with us in the morning. My mom was working night shifts. Then they'd swap. They barely saw each other. They worked overtime on weekends. Like it was very, very humble beginnings. And it, it was not lost on me that they made a lot of sacrifices. So I did initially go a traditional route. I need to do really well in school and I need to go to university and get an education. They stressed that to me, you know, please pick something like study medicine, biomedicine, science, lawyer, whatever you want, but please get your education. So, so I did because I was very conscious. I made so many sacrifices and often um, they made sacrifices where they would go without things. So my brother and I could have it. So I thought I need to work. It does come from a place of, you know, it does come from a place of, you know, fear and, and, and worry, but also from, you know, this is, this is what is going to be right for you. And I think we have the privilege of being able to choose, which they didn't have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Massively. And I know that they came here and they worked really hard to have everything that they've got now. And, you know, they still work really hard, but um, I, I know that their sacrifices means that I got to grow up here in this country, which is a very different social and cultural context for women and having freedoms and choices. And it was difficult, but I'm sure we'll get into it along the way. You know, I assimilated to the culture here and I brought them along with me and they've been on this journey with me too. So I've been pretty lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's go. So you kind of talked about how you were a shy, but creative kid. Um, that, I mean, I, I wouldn't have guessed that you were shy. What brought you to begin modeling? Like what, what kind of sparked that in you? Yeah. So I, yeah, I was really, really shy, massive social anxiety. And I had like one friend in primary school and she was like a cousin's cousin. From a young age, I talk about starting to feel different and early experiences with racism and with boys and not feeling like anybody liked me. And I just went into the shell. In high school, was bullied a little bit, incurred a lot of racism. I was just like this chameleon, wearing white makeup, 
green eye contacts, changing everything about myself depending on who I was talking to because I just wanted to belong and fit in. Um, and that kind of social anxiety went into my 20s. So being a shy kid who felt like they didn't belong, um, it influenced my career prospects because even though I was this creative kid, I felt like I had to stick to very conventional roots of success because I don't see many brown faces in Australian media. I didn't see short women modeling at Miss Universe. Do you know what I mean? Like none of that. So I knew I was very, very intellectual, academically inclined, and I know I'm smart. I ended up finishing university, got a really great ATAR, and I, I went into psychology. I finished that, started doing the fourth year, which is the honors program. And in my gut, I just felt like I, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be doing clinical practice. I know I love this degree. I know I want to help people, but my higher self was just telling me this is not the way to do it. So I took two years off and I just worked in fashion retail. And it was then that I realized, you know what, maybe I could do HR. It's a business application of psychology. I ended up doing that. Also then going into a corporate career. But at the time that I was studying my master's, I suddenly felt this pull to explore my creative side, the side that I had repressed to be academic and given up all the things that I loved. And I was like, you know what? I want to do a makeup course. And social media was starting to become a thing then. So I went back and I did, I did a makeup course at the same time that I was doing a master's of management at Melbourne Uni. And I remember some of my peers looking down on it and they were saying things like, you're not going to become one of those makeup girls, are you? Like you've got this degree at Melbourne. And I'm like, you know what? I don't have to choose. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. So I'm so glad I listened and I, I did this makeup course and I just started sharing beauty tips for people of color online. And I didn't realize it at the time, the significance of what I was doing, but brown people, we didn't see people like us talking about these conversations or having a seat at the table when it came to beauty. So it started to grow a community. And all of a sudden I was like, wow, this is working. And I was weaving in messages of my experiences with racism or exclusion from the beauty industry, so on and so forth. And then I'd been doing that for a couple of years hadn't really taken off, but I think people knew like, oh, she's like uh, the brown girl in beauty kind of thing. And then I saw in 2019, a woman that I knew because we worked in the same government building become Miss Universe Australia 2019. And she was an Indian Australian lawyer. And Priya. Priya. And I, and I remember seeing Priya do it. And we knew each other because we saw each other at a fire evacuation at the base of our building. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, my God, this woman, we work in the same building. She's academic. She's, and she's also Miss Universe. And I thought, hang on a minute, maybe I could do it too because if it goes well, I can use it to talk about these things that I'm passionate about. But I was still very insecure about my height. For people uh, listening, how tall are you? 160 centimeters. I literally scrape in at five foot three. I might be really? five foot two. I might have like overestimated a centimeter. <laughs> I'm not very you can, tall. You can do that. We're virtual, oh, so we can't measure. <laughs> that's it. And you know what? That's how I got into pageantry. It wasn't because I always wanted to be a Miss Universe or I always wanted to be in pageants, but because I thought Miss Universe Australia could be a vehicle for what I've always wanted to do. And my family, you know, were incredible because at that point I had showed them I can go to uni and graduate with first class honors. I was nominated for a scholarship to Harvard and I turned it down. Wow. <laughs> so it's, it's, oh they knew, they're like this girl, like she's fine. Whatever she decides to do, mum and dad were like, we know you can take care of yourself. So when I said, Hey, I'm applying to Miss Universe, they were so excited because they grew up watching it and it's pretty big in India. So I was lucky. That's amazing. No, that was actually going to be my next question, which was, did you feel supported by your family to pursue this? And it sounds like you did. Um, I guess from the other perspective is the extended community, right? And it isn't conventional. Um, and I don't know how integrated you are into the South Asian community or how integrated your uh, parents are, but did you feel any like judgment or backlash from the extended community? My family is very integrated in the South Asian community. My mum's entire family came over here. And because they're very involved in the church, um, they're connected to the broader South Asian community. But funnily enough, I don't think I got a lot of backlash from the South Asian community because I went into Miss Universe and modeling. If anything, 
I probably see people feel a little bit sensitive to when I'm talking about sex or sexuality or, you know, things like that. That's where they're like, oh my God, taboo. But I got a lot more coming where, you know, that stuff is just scratching the surface. But when it comes to Miss Universe and modeling, they were actually really supportive. I have to say, I felt like the entire Brown community was my family cheering for me. You know, you, you would think that maybe there'd be people with some conservative ideas. Nope. They were so proud to see one of their own as Miss Universe Australia. And it wasn't just Australia, it was global. Because when I won, it made global headlines and it was huge in India. So I'm very lucky. That is really beautiful. I do think that I, I do think that people's mindsets and because of people like you are changing because there is not there is no longer this really restrictive box over South Asian women. It's kind of expanding slowly. Obviously, it's still there for some people, but I think, yeah, I think that's beautiful and really lucky as well. Tell me about the experience you had it during Miss Universe. I mean, you went to the international competition. What was that like? Oh, if you want, you can start at, you know, what it was like in the Australian rounds as well. Yeah. You know, in the Australian round, it was very interesting. So what a lot of people don't know is 2019 October became a state finalist. March 2020 became a national finalist. Boom, lockdown. So I I competed the entire time from home. And at the time, Kripa, I had moved back to my mum and dad's family home with my brother, thinking I'll only be here for a couple of months. But then a lockdown happened. So I ended up being with them for much longer because I'd just come out of a very long-term relationship. I had moved in with my ex. Again, parents so supportive, which is a little bit unconventional and maybe a little bit forward for some people in the South Asian community. But I'd moved back home, was in a bunch of debt, and I'm like, I need to get myself together. Competing for Miss Universe was this huge motivator. And I worked really hard, worked really hard, and I won after competing at home because I believe I showed Miss Universe that I don't care what restrictions are on me, I'm going to be impactful. They selected me as the national representative and it was really interesting. I'm the third woman of color to represent this country, the second Indian Australian. And there was a, there was there were a few different conversations happening um, that were a little bit concerning. One, while I was competing, I remember telling a colleague at my corporate job, I said, look, I'm, I'm a finalist from Miss Universe Australia. And she was a senior manager in in government and she had said do you think your chances of winning are hindered because they've already gotten indian and i didn't know how to respond to that other than being very very um strongly aware of the fact that she was looking at me through a lens of race born and raised in this country but even if i had immigrated here and become a citizen or permanent resident that's, that's not what defines what australian is and that became a bit of a theme so whilst i was miss australia there was discourse on, is she Australian enough? And I saw people commenting things like, you're not even Australian. You don't even look like most Australians. That's Miss India, not Miss Australia. It was very hurtful. That's what it was like. And people, I remember even long after Miss Universe ended and I'd gotten back, I was at an event and a gentleman walked up to me and said, do you think um, you won? I was chatting about this with a couple of people, but do you think you won because the organization are trying to secure new viewership? from overseas. I'm like, so are you asking if I'm a diversity checkmark? Because I'm like, no, I I won because I was the most suitable person to represent the country. Um, And it's like, you've got to justify the space you take up. That's what it felt like. It felt like I've got to explain to people why I'm Aussie enough, why this isn't a diversity move, why I deserve to be here because I'm short, I'm Indian, this, that, or the other. So instead of thinking, poor me, I'm going to use this. That's actually why I need to be here. If nobody was saying this, we wouldn't have a problem. But because people have these ideas, that's why someone needs to come through and shed light on it and say, this is what's happening and I'm going to prove to you why. It's, It's interesting to me that the discourse was around, you know, there's already been an Indian um, Miss Universe Australia. Can there be another one? And it's like, if you're the third woman of colour to represent Australia, that tells you that there's been multiple of the same, you know, same kind of people um, representing Australia. And there isn't an issue when there's two, three, four, 100 white Miss Universe Australias, but it's an issue when there's 
too. Yeah. I think that, that that's a common thread in a lot of industries where it's like, you know, I had a friend who was a comedian and uh wanted to wanted to hop on uh TV and one of one of he was told by one of his colleagues, Oh, are you gonna be like the second Walid Ali? And yeah. it's like, No, I'm just gonna be myself. We're we're not tokens. We're not tokens. And that's the thing. It's it's because you only see one or two, barely any um you, you don't have adequate representation of black, indigenous or people of colour, right? And because we're starting to see these few coming through, it's like, oh, are you going to be the next, you know, um, whoever? I'm now a columnist for Nine Honey. And one of my articles that I had done was talking about how within Australian media, despite having such a rich, diverse and multicultural society where people are from non-European, non-Anglo-Celtic backgrounds, we have, I think it's something like over 75% of reporters and commentators and, and people visible in that space are overwhelmingly white, right? And, you know, I think we need to ask ourselves, why is it when we look at the ethnic makeup of this country, are we not accurately reflecting that in media? Why are we not showing the full spectrum when we're putting forward a domestic and international representation of what we are? And I think the the added kind of issue with it is people might be represented, but are they being represented as nuanced human beings or are they represented as only through a lens of race? Is there, you know, can they be seen as multifaceted humans who are, you know, not this homogenous, like, sea of brown? It's more than that, isn't it? A hundred percent, Kripa. I cannot tell you how strongly I feel about that because black, indigenous and people of color are often lumped together and we are expected to think the same things, to feel the same ways. There is no accounting for individual differences. And I have to say, and this might be, you know what, let me be honest about this. We do this to ourselves sometimes. And this might be an uncomfortable point, but let me give you an example. I have a cover story coming out on Sunday, and I've written um, an opinion piece for a magazine on the politics of tanning. So when I've spoken about how as a woman of color, I do use body makeup and self-tan, and I'm working with brands to get them to understand the sensitivities. This has been a predominantly white space that does not educate and does not include people of color. And for that reason, you see things like black fishing, cultural appropriation. However, there are people of color who want to use tan too, who want to, who want to enhance their melanin, their melanin in a very safe, sunless way. And they use it to cover their back acne for, you know, we got hyperpigmentation on our limbs. It's about choice, right? And I remember some people of color were sensitive about that, but I said, I believe in advocating for education and inclusion here so that we retain the choice to still take up space in what has been a predominantly white space. And some people then are like, people of color should not be advocating for this at all. But we need to account for individual differences and choice. And I think when we start to blanket generalizations of how we should be, what we're like, what we should do, we're doing to ourselves what for very long outsiders to our communities have done to us majority of people were very supportive and in fact a lot of people of color were like wow I'm so glad to see someone who looks like me using these products and teaching me how to use it in a way that caters to me but then others were saying you shouldn't be supporting this because you're supporting black fishing no I'm not um that that's the thing it's it's because it's it's talking about supporting black fishing but I think no matter what color you are some people tan it happens naturally and if you want to do it in a sunless way and you're not appropriating someone's skin and what's the issue? It's enhancing what already is. So, I, and I think that's it's really interesting. So, I've written this piece, and it's and one of the things I stress is we need to acknowledge and celebrate differences within our community and individual differences in thoughts, ideas, stories, views, opinions. Because I, for one, I don't represent every single South Asian belief, value, thought. I'm sure that a lot of the things that I have spoken about, will speak about, some people go, mm, I don't agree with that, but that's okay. Yeah, I mean, that would be a lot of pressure on you <laughs> to hold every single idea. I, I had maybe one or two people send quite aggressive messages that were very, it was hurtful initially because I do not take this this feedback lightly and I would hate to ever... Um, offend or misrepresent or you know what I mean but at the same time it's like this is genuinely what I believe these are products I use and this is an opinion I have and I can't 
change that to please everybody and one person. And that's why we need representation of not just one token, but many people from the community. We're heading into a little bit of a break, but before you grab your coffee, I really want to share with you our sponsor for this week, Neom Wellness. Neom is a luxury hair and skincare brand, and it's all about Ayurvedic elements of Indian alchemy and blending that with modern science to make sure Australia gets the absolute best hair and skincare possible. Neom are bringing together their natural, high-performance, results-driven products, while also providing a pathway for people to experience the best benefits of simple beauty rituals that also serve to nourish the soul. Every product is formulated for efficacy and well-being, as well as being all natural, cruelty-free, vegetarian and 100% free from GMOs, parabens, petrochemicals or synthetic fragrances. Guys, you have no idea how excited I am to work with these guys. I have the driest hair. I, you know, lockdown has done a number on all of us, but for me in particular, I've been bleaching my tips again and again. And look, I've got so much to do for my hair in order for it to be rejuvenated again. And I didn't really know where to start. So I'm really excited to get behind Neem, try some of their products and really bring some life back into my hair. Their range consists of a fortifying hair oil to strengthen the hair, their strong roots shampoo to nourish the hair, and strong roots conditioner to protect the hair. In Indian culture, the Ayurvedic concept of wellness has always been holistic, natural, seasonal, proactive, and habitual. In our Australian culture, wellness is connected to nature, being outdoors, taking care of your body both inside and out. Well, Nupur and Minal, proud Australian Indians, have completely married these two things. This is centuries old, time-tested, passed down to us through our family. And now it can be in a bottle in our hands in this really recognizable, familiar way. So post-lockdown, I'm committing to using Neom. I want to commit to it as a self-care routine, but also as a beauty regime. Come join the journey with me. You can find them at neom-wellness.com or on Instagram at neomwellness. Neom, that's spelled N-I-Y-A-M, wellness. The Australian beauty industry hasn't always catered for people of colour and uh, Indigenous and Black people. What companies do you think are doing this right? I think we need to be looking at companies that are not jumping off the back of trends or looking performatively at this sort of thing. I'll start by saying Fenty. Massive, massive, massive stand for Fenty because that sort of came in and disregarded the rules and how things have been and they've gone, we're going to cater to everybody. Um, I also personally, you know, I'm also very thrilled to be a partner of two global iconic brands. So talking about Clinique and Olay, and they're amazing because everybody knows them. They're global. And for them to want to partner with me, knowing very well that all the projects I do champion the stories I'm trying to give visibility to, my beliefs around diversity, inclusivity, and talking about what is considered taboo and unconventional, they want to be a part of it. And every, I've been a partner for both of those brands for a number of years now. And every time we commence a new contract, they sit down and say, this is the launches we have for the year, but how do you want to do it? How do you want to tell these stories? What's important to you? What do you have coming up where we can work together? So it's not just, I love that they have a very collaborative, consultative approach and they value what I have to say. And they both champion innovation They both want to give visibility to underrepresented groups. I know, for example, with Ole, next year, we have something pretty exciting. I can't share what it is yet, but it's championing um, inclusion and people celebrating who they really are. So watch this space. But it's, it's these phenomenal initiatives to make people know that they're beautiful, they're seen, they're valued, they matter as they are. And, you know, I'm really excited to be a partner for both Clinique and Ole for that reason. There, a lot of the time, it tends to be that representation is merely diversity and the inclusion part is just tacked on and it's not really um, spoken about. And I think that kind of extends to, you know, whether it's uh, on set where, you know, just the actors or the models are people of colour and we don't really talk about, okay, but who are the decision makers? Are they the ones um, who actually have a say? Do, are there people who are Black, Indigenous and um, people of colour who are 
are calling the shots or are white stories being told through brown bodies and I think that's mm. the that's the tough thing to deal with so I think that is really cool that you're being really involved in um in the decisions they're amazing and like I'm talking directly to brand managers right and you know until we get those those numbers up where we see teams that are completely representative I, I think it's phenomenal that they sit down and they ask what do you want to do what do you want to tell what's the messaging and they they do consult with me on that and I think that's a beautiful way to work um, when you're trying to make sure that you're telling all stories you're not telling it through a white lens you're giving um, an amplified mic to the people who have lived this. I'm really keen to take it back a step and talk about how long that the kind of backlash and racism, I mm. mean, we can call it what it is, that comes hand in hand as with being Miss Universe Australia. How has that kind of shaped your journey? I know that it's given you that fuel to talk about it more. Um, do you think that that's, do you think that it ever gets any less? Do you ever hear any less of it? Or is it just something that, you know, you constantly have to deal with? I think, you know, it's a really good question um, because the honest answer is we live in a racist society and this is not a personal attack on Australian people. It's the reality of the way our society is structured. You know, in a post-colonial world, unfortunately, systems and structures still exist that create an us versus them mentality firstly mm -hmm. for our First Nations people who are the most oppressed, marginalised, underrepresented and harmed groups and then off the back of that, you know, people of color as well. They don't experience it to the same degree, but there still is that us versus them mentality that, you know, has lingered because it was not too long ago that we did have a white Australia policy <laughs> and an immigration restriction act. So, you know, it's hard to get rid of those mindsets because it's filtering through generations. And whilst we're seeing it less, it still exists. Mm. Just because a lot of formal systems have been abolished, it doesn't mean that the mindsets and the attitudes and therefore the barriers to access don't exist. They do. And even though Miss Universe you know, has passed and I, I did that and that was amazing, it doesn't matter because I now have a very public career and it doesn't matter what I do, I still experience that racism. For example, I was in the media recently talking about sexism. I saw a few comments saying, you know what, there's no there's no issue with sexism in schools, deport her. I had shared my opinions on vaccinations and someone said, you're being divisive and un-Australian, deport. That word, I've heard that since as a joke in school. I hear that as a woman. And I'm like, where do you want where, where do you want to deport me? I was born and raised in Greenvale. <laughs> Like, I, just, I don't know where you want me to go. It's, and you've got to laugh at it because it, it just, I know that these attitudes exist. And believe me, it hurt. Um, when I first won Miss Universe Australia, a fake article was published on a gossip site and it opened the floodgates for a lot of racism and abuse. And I remember I cried for two weeks. I was new to it. I thought, I don't want to do this. I don't want a public career. But it built a thick skin. And upon reflection, I was like, no, I'm not going to buckle. I did not come this far advocating for people of color to then fall and show them that you can be knocked off your pedestal because we deserve the pedestal, especially when we've been told you can't even take up space here. So it was really important to me that, you know, even though now I know I'm navigating many different spaces, Miss Universe is done, but I can promise you with my upcoming projects, it's going to be a lot more public. And I know that those attitudes will still be there. And if anything, they'll come up easily because I don't shy away from talking about this. I, I take it um, in my stride. I know it's a part of doing what we do, but the alternative is I don't talk about it and I try and fly under the radar but that is a huge mm. disservice to our community and I, I won't do that. I think as a public figure, it's really easy to kind of just say, oh, yeah, I mean, she she chose to be in the public eye and she kind of has to deal with it. But honestly, I'm really sorry that you're dealing with this like on such a regular basis because it, it yeah, sure, it, it makes waves, but it doesn't negate the fact that you are human and that these are real things being said to you and hurting. Yeah, but you know what, Kripa, I think, yes, and it does. And I'm very lucky to have a support system around me. I'm going to start seeing a psychologist. Um, just, you know, whether things are hard or not, mental health is so important. And just as I see a doctor and an osteo, my mental health, I need to do that because I can tell you now in 2022, there'll be a lot of changes <laughs> and I need to prepare myself by speaking to someone and making sure I'm healthy. But the thing is, 
what's being said to me, it's actually not just a personal attack to me. The sentiments reflect derogatory attitudes to entire communities of people of color. And that's Mm. why I don't back down and that's why I won't buckle. No, you're right. It it is it is goes beyond just, you know, criticizing one person. It is just a whole stream of racism that hits every single person, as it's said. I was gonna touch on this. And I'm interested to hear what your perspective is as a uh, winner of Miss Universe Australia. Mm. Um, A lot of people hold the opinion that pageantry is outdated and it's sexist. How do you reconcile that uh, commentary with your kind of pursuit to um, advocate for diversity and inclusion? And how how do you justify that? I'll start by saying, you know, the way I do it and balance it is honesty. I'm not going to pretend like Miss Universe is a perfect arena because it's not. And I speak about that. You know, firstly, we have to acknowledge that it does have patriarchal roots. And when it was owned by Trump, it was a very different thing. It's since been taken over by IMG. And so the focus is shifting. Um, And if you spend more than five minutes researching it, instead of, you know, a lot of people will think it's like miscongeniality. But if you look into the women that are coming forward, you have doctors, you have people in media, you have educators, scientists, you have people like me who, you know, psychology graduates, and we all have many different causes. The current Miss Universe, Andrea from Mexico, she's actually an advocate against gender-based violence and does phenomenal work in that space, having been a victim of it herself. And for me, I've been able to come through and take something that has patriarchal roots, but I'm using it to maximize my own opportunities for me, but also for women, but also for people of color, also for anybody who's felt like they've been on the fringes. So, you know, we still live in a patriarchal society. We do. So I say, if a woman is going to come through and take something and use it to enhance and empower herself and hopefully change it and make it better for the next, I think that's okay. And with Miss Universe, as a diversity and inclusion advocate, I have no hesitation in saying that we have a way to go in that arena. I should not have been the shortest woman to walk that stage and make it to the top 10. That should have been happening years ago. We should be seeing many women of average height because what has height got to do with your ability to be a leader? Nothing. We've seen one transgender representation. We're starting to see body diversity, but it needs to change faster because that's I understand why people look at it and think, It's not inclusive and it's outdated because you see a bunch of the same women, height and body shape coming through. We don't see diversity. When we see diversity, then we know, you know, true diversity representing all the different segments in our community. When we see that, we know that, okay, this is about giving people an opportunity to be a leader and a global ambassador. And we're moving towards that, but we have a way to go. And for me, I did it um, five foot three. A lot of countries actually had height requirements, discriminating against. Really? So I couldn't even enter in India, Philippines, Mexico, Singapore, Namibia, Kenya. I couldn't because I'm too short, right? And when I did it and ended up making the top 10, after that, a lot of people, it garnered a lot of media attention because I'm only 160 centimeters. You can see I'm nearly half the size of some of these women, but I did it and I was confident and I believed in my message to the point that right after, a number of countries removed their height requirement because it showed them, and I was very vocal about it, people in the lead-up were talking about it, putting me down and saying I didn't deserve to be there, how am I going to stand up against real women? I read a lot of hurtful stuff, Krupa, every single day being ranked and judged, and I was quiet, took it in, I just thought, let me show you when I'm there. And to end up doing that, it just showed people it doesn't matter. Height should not matter. It has any kind of physical characteristic, weight, height, whether you're able-bodied, it, it doesn't affect your ability to be a global voice and an ambassador and be a leader. So in my own way, I got to go there. And like I said, Miss Universe has a way to go, but I changed that about height. And I changed the way that people thought about what Australian is what Australian beauty looks like. So for me, yeah, it's got patriarchal roots, but it was progress. And I got to push progress 
with this opportunity. If I didn't do it, I'd probably still be working in HR without an amplified voice for these issues. So I think it's worth it. I completely agree with you. I think that sometimes in order to uh, in order to lift and elevate messages in a complex patriarchal kind of post-colonial society, we kind of have to use those instruments to kind of rise. and um and a lot of the time that's more effective than than not than not going there. I was reading over the weekend your recent article with uh, Mama Mia um and a story that, really uh that really touched me um was your first experience with modeling and being uh, ghosted as yep. um as a woman of color who wanted to uh work with this uh brand um and then you mentioned a story about how one of the directors on set was saying that you know everything is too dark dark everything the hair and the skin and the body and and how, i guess my question there is could you tell me more about how those experiences made you feel at the time and how do you what do you think needs to change today in the industry um so when i when i was 25 that was when i had mentioned i was starting to do things on social media and i caught the attention of this agency who when i looked at their feed the talent was all white bar one or two people. They're a very big agency. And they called me and I remember taking time to have my first phone conversation. I was so excited. I thought, oh my God, finally, people are starting to notice. Maybe this is an opportunity. But I said from the offset, I'm really passionate about sharing my stories. I I didn't want to be a whitewashed version of me, right? And Mm -hmm. I remember they sent me a contract and I was looking at the contract. I was like, hang on, hang on. I I need to have a chat that my, my message And I need confirmation that my message won't be muted. And after I said that and pushed back a little bit, they ghosted me. For months, I was emailing, 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 and I was devastated. And at the same time, I got contacted by a jewelry brand from Sydney. And they said, look, we love your look. We'd love you you to come and, and be the face for this campaign, so on and so forth. I didn't have any representation. So I Googled usage charges like what do you charge people for hair and makeup and I pulled together this rate card that was so cheap in hindsight that I was like oh my god I'm charging what I want and I was flown to Sydney and I remember the photographer had worked with a number of talent on major major publications and they let me know he's really great but when we were shooting I felt very uncomfortable in front of the camera And it was that social anxiety kicking in. And I remember him looking at the photos and just being frustrated. And he goes, you know what? It's just, it's not working. It's not working. All I see is just, it's just dark. Everything's dark. The brows, the hair, the eyes, everything. It's just too dark. And I was like, oh my God. And I went back and I put on colored eyeshadow to try and lift what it was because I'm like, oh my God, I can't change my skin. I can't change my hair, brows and eyes. This is all I have. And you knew that when you brought me here. Um, and I was devastated. I left. Those photos never ended up getting used. They didn't like it. I was clearly uncomfortable. And it made me feel like maybe I don't belong here. But these things were meant to happen because that's when my current agency contacted me. And I remember taking the call. I was in the, in, in the office and I'd scheduled the call and I stepped out to the neighboring cafe. My hands were shaking because I was talking to my now manager saying, this is what's happened. And if I sign with you, I need to be able to say what I want to say in my content. I do not want to be controlled. I'm not a billboard. I want to be using this to tell my story and many others. And they said, that's why we want to sign you. And I'll tell you this now, that first agency that ghosted me had been trying to get in contact with me multiple times over the last year. The head of their agency reaching out Maria, we love what you're doing. We love what you've done. We've got a number of partnerships we want to talk to you about. Are you interested in management? And I just remember you didn't believe in my value or my message. You want to sign me now because of the success that I've attained. And for me, it's more important to me to work with values, people who share my values and understand the purpose. No amount of money can change that. And I just have politely said thank you, but I'm I'm very happy with my representation, but it's very interesting to me how if you stay true to yourself, it, it, it doesn't matter if no one else believes in your message. You've got to back yourself. You've got to back yourself. Yeah, it's so it's so funny how that 
turned around um, now that you've, you know, made a name for yourself. And it's like, how did people treat you when your name wasn't as known is so much more reflective of their values. Yeah. Um, And on the story about, um, you know, the, the, the jewelry brand, I just find it funny how you're the one that's expected to change your makeup and your look, even though you're born with dark skin. Yeah. And not the not the actual teams like the teams sort out the lighting to change their lighting sort out the lighting sort out the background change the styling they knew they were getting you like I, they knew you were the model I, I i don't know what i remember i i will never forget him saying that dark everything it's too dark i will never ever for as i i will always remember that in my career because now this year i shot a campaign with clinique where I talked about that and not being able to find my makeup shade because I was too dark on the scale. There are people who are much more underrepresented and marginalized than I am. So if I'm getting it, how bad must it be for everyone else? But how great that I get to talk about that when a couple of years ago, four or five years ago, I was being told too dark. And I think it, it kind of goes hand in hand with the whole um, with the whole vibe that the Australian beauty is like your beach goddess yeah. who's got like wavy blonde hair. And yeah. I mean, they're beautiful, of course, but that's not what the Australian beauty is limited no, to. And you've yeah. just absolutely made waves, no pun intended. Thank you. You know, it's funny. I, my first shoot after becoming Miss Universe, I walked onto set. I just won. And I was doing a hair shoot and one of the crew members said to me, wow, I was expecting a six-foot glamazon. And, you know, you, why do you think they're changing that? Can you imagine the audacity to then and there ask me why I deserve to be there? And I literally, but after after years of this, I just won Miss Australia. I was like, I deserve to be here. I remember saying, well, it's because Miss Universe is about being a role model, not a supermodel. And I don't know what my height has to do with any of that. And because I didn't back down, she said, oh, no, 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 I know, I agree. I think it's amazing that da 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 But I'm like, no, it's we cannot speak to people like this. If you haven't seen that representation, you know, people sometimes forget that the language and the way they speak, it just, it's pretty much asking people, why are you allowed to be here? <laughs> and I think that the dichotomy between that and also you know, filling this diversity checkbox and really having to suss out which companies you're working with is, which mm-hmm. companies you're working with are having you on for the right reasons. But do you know what you need to do? You ask, you ask, they're like, sorry, can you, sorry, can you explain that? What do you, what did you mean by that? And you, and you get people to, you get them to explain their thoughts and, and not even take their own hole, you get them to sort of stop and question and realize for themselves why what they're saying it actually is probably offensive and not the right thing to say to somebody a lot of the time people get away with saying this stuff because they're never pulled up on it and it's not to shame anyone but you're asking them like you've said this can you explain your thinking <laughs> back it please yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I can imagine that's something you deal with so often one thing that I remember from this year which really completely changed the landscape on the conversation around toxic masculinity was your calling out of the group chat and that was huge at the time when it was happening and Mm. has had a a flow-on impact as well Um, essentially what uh, for anyone listening who wasn't aware of it uh, Maria was kind of accidentally added to a group chat where guys were saying some pretty high school boys were saying some pretty problematic stuff Mm. um, about women and talking about women in a really disgusting way Mm -hmm. and you used that to completely start a conversation I guess for our listeners, and many of them will be brown men, what what message do you have for them as to how they can, whether or not they're actually perpetrators of these kind of conversations, what can they do to support women, brown women who are dealing with sexism? Mm. And what can they do as brown men to be better men? I think it starts with a change in mindset because what I noticed when that happened, there were mixed responses in that a lot of women predominantly, no, I'm going to go so far as to say thousands of women came forward and shared stories of different levels of sexual misconduct and abuse with me. And they shared experiences with this particular school, with that particular cohort, similar experiences in schools. And I'm not just talking about Australia. People were messaging me from Mm. all over the world. And 
when yeah. this happened, there were a lot of men who actually shared the piece and were like, we have to do better. Let's start a conversation. Men who came forward to these women and apologized, not just the people at the mm. center of this, but others who came across it and reflected and thought, maybe I've said or done something that's hurt somebody. And now I know. But there were also people mm. who were listening to read but. So let me say that again. When, when you are, I guess for any, any man who's listening, anyone who's listening, when people are coming forward and sharing experiences with sexual misconduct, abuse, harassment, assault, whatever it is, you need to listen. And there are different levels to listening because a lot of people listen to rebut. They listen to hear what they want to hear and invalidate it. Or you listen to possibly change your perception and just understand where the other person is coming from. And when you listen from that place, maybe you stand to gain something and change the way that you think and you act. But the thing is, people need to know that when we're talking about this stuff, it is not a personal attack. And a lot of men feel targeted. And you have to ask yourself, why are you hearing these stories about malfeasance that other people have experienced and somehow centering yourself in this conversation? Because it is not a personal attack. No, we're not saying not all men do this. But until all men are fighting to create a safer world for women, non-binary and transgender people, then it's not enough. I think it's realizing that being an ally and having a society where we're fighting against sexism and misogyny, it's not unattainable and it's not difficult. It's just taking responsibility in your own life and your own circles of influence. No one is asking you to parade on the street with signs and protests. It's when your friend makes that sexist joke or sends something disgusting in a group chat, you tell a mate, that's not how we speak about women. When your parents say something that maybe reflect a sexist attitude, you invite them to a conversation and stand up for what you believe. Because if you're neutral when these things are happening or silent, you are an accomplice to the injustice. You're an accomplice to the oppression. And I can tell you an example of a great male ally. My ex and I were together for four and a half to five years and we speak on and off as friends. He and I were speaking this year and around the time that that sexism story was taken off in the media. He didn't have to do this, but he told me this, that he was in a group chat with his friends, 30-something-year-old men. And some of them had said, it's a bit ironic how she's speaking about sexism when she wore a bikini at Miss Universe, not realizing the irony of them making a statement like that. That attitude in itself is sexist. My choice to embrace the physical intellect and participate in something like that does not invalidate my right to speak up against injustices that affect all women and myself. He, my ex, ended up calling it out in that group chat. And he ended up saying to them, let me tell you why that attitude is incorrect. And he stuck up for me and he didn't have to. And that to me is being an ally where his friends might have looked at him and thought, you're not even with her. And he called it out in the group chat and it completely changed the conversation. And they apologized for what they had said and understood where they went wrong. That is being an ally. It's not worrying about backlash. It's prioritizing what needs to be said, listening and enacting that in your own relationships. That's all we're saying. And not limiting your advocacy for women that you're, that you yes. love or that you're attracted yes, to. Yes. And, and that's the biggest one. It's, I, really hate when people say, I, I have a mother and a sister. And you know what? Like I would hate it if someone said this about them. Do you know what? You should hate it if someone is saying anything derogatory about any person because they're a person and a human being with thoughts, feelings, and they're deserving of respect, not because of yeah. their proximity to you. Again, centering yeah. yourself in your family. You know, we had a leader in this country pass a remark like that and lack the empathy. Yeah. And again, it's because I have women in my life that I care about. Therefore, the, the relation to me means that they deserve, no, they just, they just re deserve respect, period. I have to have patience for it to have these conversations, but inside something's just like, oh my God. Reading those stories where men are horrible to women and then they realize they have a boyfriend and the fact that a lot of the time, the thing that we have to say to people that hit on us is, oh, sorry, I've got a boyfriend. It's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yep. I did not mean to yep. disrespect that man in your life. I've had someone do not, that and apologize hey. to an ex. Cat called me and then they saw my ex and oh, sorry, mate, didn't realize. And it's like, actually, I don't like it. 
apologize to me. I used to do that when I would be turning down men at bars. I would say, oh, I've got a boyfriend. Where is he tonight? Why isn't he with you? It's mm. not enough. They need to see that I am with another man to say, okay, back off. Now I just have boundaries. I'm like, no, sorry, not interested. I don't, I don't need to explain yeah. anything more than that. And yeah. we need to teach women to be more comfortable with saying, no, I don't owe you anything. Yeah. Don't have to explain myself. Just no. End of story. Period. No, period. That's it. So no, because that. we don't yeah. want it. Not because the man in my life doesn't want you to come near me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Your journey from being Miss Universe and being now an advocate um, has been, you know, phenomenal. And despite being during COVID, where do you think the journey is going to take you? Uh, over the next couple of years? I mean, I know it's really hard to predict, um, but what can Australia expect from you? I know that you've now started as a columnist with Nine. What can Australia expect from you? Thank you. you. Oh, well, I, I said from the start I wanted a career in media. I wanted to foray into television, and I've always wanted my words to change the world. So the column is a start, but I have two major projects that I'm not allowed to share just yet, but like you can see it on my face that I'm so excited. I can't contain my smile. Um, I have two really big projects coming up already that I can't wait to share, but I believe that they will work to champion visibility, representation, and telling these stories and hopefully changing lives. So that's coming up. But in terms of what they're going to be centered around, you know, I think Australia knows I'm very passionate about diversity and inclusion, but I have so much more that I believe in that I want to share. For example, as a South Asian woman, I believe in moving towards being a sex positive society. So I'm going to have a lot of projects and and a lot coming out where I want to be talking about sex and sexuality because I think we have a way to go in shifting cultural attitudes on that arena. And then again, that naturally leads into sexism and misogyny um, and projects around inspiring leadership on an individual level. So there's a lot coming, but I will say this, it is... That little girl who had six different career aspirations a week, it is her dream come true because I know, I know, I know how people of color have responded to me just being Miss Universe. I promise that the things coming in my career are going to show them not only do you not have to pick, but you can do it all and you deserve to take up space in all the spaces. I was just going to, I mean, firstly, I'm I'm so excited. Um, and I think that I can speak for a lot of people, but you living your dream and doing all the things that you're doing in a lot of ways is a dream come true for a lot of people watching you live your dream. So it's like very vicarious. I, mean, I will end with one more question. Um, I said, I know I said the last one is my last question, but what, off the back of your response to that one, um, what advice do you have for South Asian Australian women and men who are working towards making it in the industry they're in, whatever that industry yeah. is? I think the biggest advice I would say, and this is something that I've done in my own life, is don't ever forget your ability to choose whether or not you allow inherited generational cultural trauma and outdated attitudes and beliefs whether or not you have that in your life along the way when you are trying to make it in whatever industry you want to make it in at some point these things are going to come up especially in our community whether it is family opinions whether it is outsiders projecting their stereotypes onto you whether it is trauma in your own family that's telling you maybe you don't deserve to be here or you can't do this you have every right to cut off all of that in pursuit of breaking negative cycles and pursuing what it is that you want to believe. And I can promise you I have had to cut off a lot um, in terms of people, in terms of even family, in terms of attitudes and ideas that people projected onto me. But I decided that I was going to stop cycles of trauma and sexism and misogyny and racism. I decided it stops with me. And that's sometimes something that you have to do to move forward. And I get it that in our communities, we have this sense of honor and responsibility. If your sense of honor and responsibility means that you're self-sacrificing, I can promise you that you are not going to be nearly as of service and love to the people you care about than if you prioritized yourself. I think that's really, really important 
because when you're doing this stuff and you're trying to break away and do your own thing, sometimes in our community, you can be seen as a troublemaker, disruptive, different. Don't stop. Don't internalize. That's another person's problem, not yours. So keep going. Honestly, I really needed to hear that. And I think um, I think that's something that you're right. People don't realize that it is a choice. Yeah. And there are consequences to that choice, but it's a matter of balancing whether or not those consequences are worth it yeah. for your own kind of identity and your own yeah. happiness. Thank you. Thank you just for being here and thank you for your time. It's been such a pleasure um, chatting with you. It's been an honour interviewing you. And um, and you really are an icon, an Australian icon. <laughs> so I am... Oh. I'm really, really excited. <laughs> if I'm, I'm brown, so you can't tell when I'm blushing, but I would be if I wasn't brown. <laughs> I know. That's you know, like, like, like no one... you feel the heat under your cheeks, but you're like, you can't tell because I'm brown. <laughs> Thank you. It's kind of a good thing. It is, it is. But honestly, the, the pleasure and the privilege was mine. Thank you. I hope this conversation reaches a lot of people and that it helps in some way. I hurt so too. Thank you, my love. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Maria.